Good to be with you this morning, and you are blessed. Now, that might sound a little presumptuous. You haven't heard the sermon yet, but you take a deep breath this morning. You accomplish that successfully, then you are blessed. You have been given the gift of life this morning by the giver of life and the creator of all things, and he is here with us. The word says that where two or three are gathered in his name, he would be there. He promises us that, and if he is here, then you are certainly blessed, and I am blessed. This morning we're going to begin spending a little bit of time in a couple of short epistles by the Apostle Peter. And um, as I spent time with, with these works this week and particularly yesterday, I found myself experiencing what for me is not always my demeanor, but one of feeling joyful. And just recognizing that we can experience joy in the midst of these difficult times. I was speaking with somebody this morning, and we talked about how that's become such a cliche. We hear everybody say it during these unprecedented and difficult times. And it's become said so often that we forget these really are difficult times. There are times that cause us to be sometimes too introspective, sometimes too isolated. We are not by God's design to be a people who stay away from each other. We are not by God's design to be, be a people who cover our faces and breathe carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide either. But that's what we're doing. And that's the message of the world. Head down, mask on, eyes shut. Just get in, get out, and go back home. Don't talk to people. Don't fellowship with people. And, and it's causing... And it might not surprise you, but it's causing an overload of people who need counseling. If you're suffering from depression, you might find it difficult to get in to see a counselor right now. You know why? They are booked solid, backed up. There's a waiting list for people who are suffering from depression to get in to see someone to talk to about it. And it largely has to do with what we've been through in the last year and a half. It has been a difficult time. And so... One of the reasons I wanted to spend time in these epistles is because Peter writes to a church that is going through a very similar time for them. And while we were on sabbatical, one of the things we did is went over to Louisville for a week. And the circumstances of that unplanned trip are, are uh, for a later story. But while we were there, we went to church and their pastor gave a wonderful sermon. I believe it's out of Second Peter, actually, but it got me to coming back to these epistles that I personally have not spent a great deal of time with. Now, these are wonderful messages, and they so fit where we're at because eight different times in the short uh, first epistle he writes, he mentions eight different times that they're going through trials and hardships and ordeals, and he calls them fiery hardships and troublesome times. And so this is a message to the church because despite the fact that he spends a good amount of time talking about their trials and their temptations and their persecutions, he spends even more time talking about their joy and their hope and their identity in Christ. And they're the wonder of their salvation. And I would hope this morning to get through, or at least I plan to get through, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. I recognize, well you may not know it, but I have far more notes than usual for this particular message. And so we may not get to chapter or verse 12, but that's the wonderful thing about this epistle. It sort of divides itself nicely. And so we'll just get started however far the Spirit lets us get, that's how far we'll get. I would like to at least get 
uh, past verse 2. So we'll stop reading at verse 2. But if we get there, just by way of outline, I just want to talk about a little bit of an introduction. We're talking about the author, the recipients, and their situation. And we want to talk about verses 3 to 5, their hope in Christ. Verses 6 through 9, the joy that they have in Christ as a result of their salvation. And verses 10 through 12, the privilege of their salvation. Because they are two groups of people mentioned in verses 12, 10 to 12 that you would think would be more privileged than you are. And in fact, we are more privileged than they are. And it's because we know Christ and we have salvation in Him. So Peter begins to just praise God for all that they are and seeks to encourage them to find their identity, their hope, their joy, and their privilege not in their present circumstances. Because you are not going to be exalted. You are not going to be applauded. You are not going to find validation in the world around you in the day and age in which we live. It has been undoubtedly a difficult time in the last year and a half for the church. It has been a difficult time for Christians. It has been a difficult time for non-Christians. But it's been particularly a difficult time for church members who for a while couldn't get together. And then when we did, there was this time when, when we recognized that even to come to church, there was a certain risk involved. And yet, we came. So it's been a difficult time. But we can no longer come to church because it's easy or comfortable or popular or just the thing to do. It used to be that even people that didn't go to church, and let's be honest, never in the last several decades of our country did most Americans go to church. We've always been the minority of faithful church attenders. But there was always a sense of oughtness. And people would say things like, yeah, I really need to get my family back in church. I really ought to go to church. We don't go to church, but I know we should. They don't say that anymore. And so this idea of even that I ought to be in church is becoming a foreign idea. In fact, you ought not to go to church because you know what people in the church are. We've been vilified as small-minded, ignorant, intolerant, or perhaps all three. Environmentally, contextually, we've been challenged to gather even though we know we're exposing ourselves to a certain amount of risk and germs and potential illness or discomfort. Now, I will go on record as saying, and I don't want to, you know, anyway, uh, I don't think, at least as to date, I don't think that anybody that I know of has gotten COVID here. Now, I'm not saying nobody here has gotten COVID because we have had a number of people in the church who have gotten COVID. But I don't think we've had COVID being spread here. So we've been blessed in that way. I, I'm not sure anybody's come and said, yeah, I got COVID from a bunch of people down at church. Despite what the world may tell you, at least in our congregation, that's not happened. Now, we have several families right now that have COVID. They didn't get it here. But I'm not saying that we haven't suffered from COVID, but we've been blessed and protected in some sense. And that when we have come together to worship, that has not really been an issue. And part of that is because we've tried to be careful. But part of that, I think, is God just honors the fact that we come. We're more aware of it than ever before. At least in our family. And while it seems like things were leveling out, I think we have a little bit more of it in our congregation than we've had in the past. But here's the thing. 
COVID, in a way, has just reminded us of the brevity and the fragile nature of this life. The fact of the matter is we have been always and always will be in danger. If not from COVID, then from everything else that's out there. But you and I, we don't stop leaving the house because we might have a car wreck. It's just a statistical probability, possibility, that you might have a car accident. It's a possibility that if you go out and eat after church today, you could get E. coli from your favorite restaurant. But most of us are going to go anyway. And it's a possibility that coming to church, you might contract an illness. But COVID isn't the only one that's out there. You might get the flu. You might get H1N1, which I know is the flu. There are a number of things that can happen to you, but that is nothing new. There's nothing unique to that situation. You and I have always been in danger of something. COVID really has done us the favor of reminding us of that. Well, that's just contextually. That's our own internal struggles for us to come and gather. And there's been times we've elected not to because we just weighed, you know, the, the risk involved. But anytime we've come, there, there's been this, this subtle knowledge in the back of your mind that I've taken a chance. But we come because God is worthy. Fellowship is worthy. Worship is worthy. Culturally and socially, the church has been accused of being calloused and uncaring and daring to meet during this pandemic. Now, the same outrage, by the way, was never leveled at Walmarts and other places that stayed open during the height of the pandemic. And it's funny, the things that don't make the news are often as important as the things that do. Because you may not have heard, because it didn't make a lot of major news uh, outlets, but during the height of the the pandemic, there was a church in Mississippi that kept meeting and it was burned to the ground. And the people that did it posted a sign in front of it and said, I bet they'll stay home now. I didn't hear about that. Did they burn a Walmart down? Nope. Did they burn down the local liquor store? Nope. They burned down the school? They burned down other places? No, no. no this anger towards gathering seems to be specifically directed towards the church. You can gather at restaurants, you can gather at school, you can gather at the Walmart, you can gather at specialty shops, but don't gather to worship. And it's because the world jumped to fear, including a lot of Christians, instead of faith. And the difference between fear and faith makes people very angry. The world wants you to live in fear. They don't want you living by faith. Politically, the church has been vilified, become the object of derision and disgust as we're increasingly labeled as intolerant or ignorant. Our sensibilities have been challenged and continues to be challenged on levels that just boggle the mind. Well, let's face it, just one church is not as popular as it used to be. Now, I realize all of this sounds very contrary to what I said. And I am just so full of joy this morning. I mean, don't I sound like it? All this is going on, and yet in the midst of everything that's going on, the world is not appreciative of the church. Politically, we're derided. Culturally, contextually, it's not always easy to meet. And yet we are to have joy. And we see that 
in this wonderful letter that Peter writes. Even our own church, though, as small as our congregation is, through all of this, it's been clarified. Because even in our own church, as small as we are and as strong as we think we are or thought we were, we've had people fall away. And I'm not talking about people who've just decided to go to a different church because God has done some relocating where maybe he led somebody to go to a different church. I'm talking about people who for one reason or another just aren't coming back. They've just bailed. Bailed on meeting. They bailed on worship. They bailed on the church. They bailed apparently on a faith that maybe they never really believed in anyway. What they needed and what they got with COVID was a gentle nudge from the enemy to leave a faith that really didn't mean anything to them. Now how do I know that? That sounds judgmental. How do I know that? Maybe they truly are nervous or afraid to gather. Not to go to school. They'll go to school. Not to go to Walmart because they'll do that. Not to go to the grocery store because they'll do that. Not to go to movies because they'll do that. They'll sit in a restaurant teeming with people, brimming with germs. And yet on Sunday say, I can't come to church because I might get COVID. That's an excuse. And you think, well, that's the pandemic. That's not new either. People's always in the history of a church. Some people are just looking for a reason to not come. Some perceived slight or offense, leave the church. Some oversight by leadership, leave the church. A few boring sermons, leave the church. A few Sundays I'm asked to do something or I feel pointed out by the pastor, leave the church. People will often get a nudge to leave the church if that's really what they want to do anyway. And I met with a team or a team of pastors, about five of us on Thursday, that uh, Brother Tom Cook, some of you know, is putting together a, a meet, once a month meeting of local pastors just to get together and talk and encourage one another and see what's happening in one of those churches and pray for one another. And one of the things that is across the board, and this is interdenominational, there's a, a couple of non, non-denominational, there's one from the assemblies there, and, there, there's me and a couple of others. And one of the things that is across the board is at least a 30 to 35 percent decline in attendance. And those people just aren't coming back. Because COVID has been very clarified. Your faith ever meant something to you or it doesn't. And it doesn't take a whole lot to keep people for whom their faith is just sort of habit or practice or they give lip service to but for whom it is not deeply rooted in their heart to just stop worshiping God altogether. We're going through those difficult times. God and His providence have, has Peter write this book, so let's get to the Word. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And right there you have the Trinity involved in salvation. Through the knowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, so that, and the purpose of which, is that you might be obedient to Jesus Christ. And then he just breaks out with this praise, may the grace... In fullness 
peace, fullest measure, be with you. That's not just a greeting. That's not just a hello. That's not just a transitional statement. This is, this is what he's saying. Look at who you are. You are the elect. Yes, you're exiles. But you are the elect. You are foreknown by God. You are called according to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Unto obedience in Christ. May grace and peace be among you in fullest measure. You and I have above all people things to be excited about. To be passionately joyful about. You know why? Because I was foreknown by God. Called by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Which began a microsecond before you accepted Christ. As he quickened your mind and your heart. And I have a purpose in life. It's obedience to my King, Jesus the Christ. Peter identifies him as Peter the Apostle of Jesus Christ. And you think, well, didn't the early church know Peter? Of course they knew Peter. Peter was sort of the pillar of the early church. He was the leader of the church. You recall when Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to talk to the brethren. He says, we were greeted by Peter, James, and John. It's always Peter first. Peter, James, and John. And Paul even says they, are, they were seen to be the pillars of the church. And Peter was the leader even among those three. He was just that kind of personality. Peter was always eager to be heard, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But Peter had the personality of, of, of a very uh, outgoing, gregarious kind of leadership, so he rose to be the leader of their own church. So why, why does he identify himself as the apostle? Don't they know he's the apostle? Yes, they know he's the apostle. He's just wanting them to understand which Peter is that's writing them. Because apparently there are other Peters in the church. And so he lets them know, this is Peter, the apostle. And I'm writing to you by the authority to understand that the 12 apostles have an authority, had an authority, and they had a special gifting that you and I may very well not have today. And the early church decided, and by early church, I mean even while the apostles were still around, decided that the apostles must have certain qualifications in order to be called the, the title or have the office of apostleship. And it is impossible today to have those qualifications. So though you might hear somebody designate themselves as an apostle, biblically speaking, according to the church, they would not be an apostle. Because an apostle had to walk with and see Christ in person while he was here. And you go on about Paul. A little thing called the road to Damascus. Okay? That's a whole different story. And Paul even admits he was as though an apostle born late. So some people self-designate themselves an apostle, but when we're talking about the biblical apostles, it's a certain authority that they had. And Jesus commissioned them to speak directly on his behalf. In fact, obviously, as Peter writes, he's pinning the very word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is true and without error. But he says, you are elect, but you are exiles. The Greek term... Exile meant a sojourner or a traveler. Somebody that had no citizenship. They had no rights. Most of them didn't own property because they were in a foreign land. Now, he is writing to people that were probably dispersed in the Babylonian times 200 years before Jesus even got there. And still, and still there were pockets of the Jewish people in this area. By the way, all these places are in what we would know as modern-day Turkey. So if you need to look that up on a map, as I had to, 
uh, that'll give you the geographic region we're talking about. This is in modern day Turkey. And so in the Middle East, there were these peoples that had been carried away the Babylonians who never went back to the promised land, who never went back to where they had been. And they stayed and they settled in these areas, but they were still sojourners and they were still foreigners in the land. And so Peter writes them, and it's kind of unclear whether he's talking about just sojourners in the sense that they are products of being carried away by a foreign power into a foreign land, or if he's talking about spiritually, and I think probably both. There were foreigners in the land, but they were foreigners just here, generally speaking, on this earth. You and I are foreigners in this land. Say, well, you know, born in America, I've got a citizenship, I'm an American citizen, patriot, proud and true, proud and true, as am I. But the fact of the matter is, as we've talked about Philippians at length, our citizenship is not here. We're foreigners. We're, we're just travelers going through this land. And here's, here's a tip for you because I want you to understand. Here's, here's a tip. Don't get attached to this world. Don't get too attached to this world because you aren't staying. You're not staying. For many years, whenever Tiffany and I would move, we didn't hang pictures. We didn't put little shelves up and put what I call you know, dust collecting knickknacks on them. We didn't get window treatments. We didn't change light fixtures. You know why? Same reason we kept all our boxes. We'd just break them down, put them in a closet, or we'd put them in the attic, or we'd put them on the side of the garage. We kept all that stuff, you know, because we knew it's not going to be long, we're going to be on the road again. We weren't staying. There was just no point in really settling in because for most of our marriage, you know, we, we didn't stay more than two years in one place. You realize you're leaving but you're not staying here. This momentary existence on the earth seems like it's uh, going to last a long time. But don't get comfortable being here. I did a funeral for an elderly lady one time. She was like 103. I asked her, and I may have shared this with you, I said, does it seem like it's been 103 years? But she said, blink of an eye. Blink of an eye. I'll admit I'm a bit of a melancholy soul. I have as of late decided to rather just embrace it. And I'm in good company. But as a group, we're a reflective and sort of analytical lot. Every once in a while we have a thought that might do others well to consider, so uh, at some risk. I want to share with you an entry from my journal. At first, I look for my glasses here. You may see what I did with it. Okay. We may not be doing that because William has lost his glasses. Over there. At first, I, I start out by saying a commander in chief, the most powerful army in the world, is obviously mentally unstable, and the rest of the world is laughing at us. Uh, then I go on to talk about that for, at length. Uh, 
I've talked about the vaccine and so on and so forth and so on. Um, possibility of judgment and so forth and so on. And then, here's my thought for, I, this was last week at some point. Is this all we get? This few minutes on the earth. No matter how long one lives, I've never heard anyone say it was long enough. Or that it was anything other than brief, a breath, a whisper, and then it was over. Done as quickly as it began. I think back on my days that I thought my wedding day would never come. Or for that matter, that a high school class would never end. It seemed like my kids would be young and small forever. And then I blinked and they're grown and gone. Out of the house and with their own lives now. Their own spouses and at least one with the three wonderful children. And I will blink again. And those beautiful babies will be grown and on their own. And I will blink again. And I'll be saying goodbye to them all. And that will be that. Not long enough. But that's what we get. A small span of time, not nearly long enough. Sometimes it seems cruel to give us any time at all if it all has to end so quickly. Does this make life beautiful or terrible? Both, maybe. All we have is what we leave behind, and right now that doesn't seem like much to me. When my father passed, I didn't feel like he left much behind in the way of who he was. He was a grain of sand on an endless beach and nothing more. Not to me, of course, but the world went right on spinning and going the day he passed as it had done before he arrived. Of course, he touched lives, but those two will be gone. And when we are, everything he was will be gone. It's very difficult for us to live beyond ourselves more than one generation. When I'm gone, then my kids and then their kids, all memory of me will be gone. Then it's just stories and faded pictures and perhaps something I wrote. Nobody alive will remember ever seeing me or hearing me or what I was really like. The reality for them is gone. Looking now at a picture of my grandparents, I knew them, I saw them, I touched them, I heard them. I knew their voices and I knew their smells and their walk and their cadence. My children never did. So when I pass and those few who remain who knew them, they will be nothing but a picture on the wall. No sound, no feel, no smell, no texture, just so much ink on a page. An image of someone who might as well be anyone or everyone or no one. And they all had days they thought would never end and moments they thought would never come. Funny all the stuff I wrote about when I began this entry seems so unimportant. They seemed so important just minutes ago, but the truth is it doesn't matter because it's all going to pass sooner or later and we'll all be gone far longer than we were ever here. Just a moment, a breath, a blink ago. You are not staying here. The question is, where are you going? 
The question then becomes, how do you live on? Because you certainly are not living on here. Your kids may remember you. Your grandkids may remember you. But at some point, even people that knew you and, and talked to you and heard you and saw you firsthand, all those people were going to be gone. You're going to be nothing but a memory. And pretty soon, you won't even be that. You're not staying. So where are you going? What is the hope? Because if there is no hope, if there's nothing beyond that, if you are destined to become nothing more than just ink on some photo paper hung in a frame on a wall, then what is the point? The point is this. I have been foreknown by God. I haven't just been known by you. I haven't just been known by my kids and my grandkids. And someday they will all be gone and they will forget me. But God knew me before the foundations of the world. And God will know me for eternity. Because I have been foreknown by the living God. There is hope. And that's what Peter says. Look, there is hope that is imperishable. Cannot be stolen. You cannot be forgotten because you have been foreknown by God. Understand, I, I know that some of these words make some people bristle just a little bit because when we talk about words like elect and foreknowing, we, we get, oh, we're, oh, we're going to mess around and we're going to use the P word, the predestination word. Let me tell you something. If you bristle at the idea of the word elect and the foreknowledge of God, understand you bristle against every New Testament writer, save perhaps Jude. Other than that, every New Testament writer uses the word elect. They understood what we desperately need to understand, that we have been elected, chosen, set apart, marked out, carved out, claimed by God before the foundations of the very world. He foreknew you. And here's the mistake that we often make that I want to dispel today. I don't want you to leave here ever thinking this again. In fact, I wish the English word didn't have the word know in it. Because it has nothing to do with knowing something. God did not just know your actions, because that's what we say, right? Well, God chose us because He knew what I was going to do. That's not what the word means at all. I wish there was a different word. And there is, praise the Lord. You know what foreknew really means? To love beforehand. Because the word know is not talking about an intellectual knowledge of what you are going to do. It's talking about an intimate knowledge of who you are. It's the same word, root word, where it says, Matthew says, that Joseph did not know her. He did not know Mary. In other words, they were not intimate before Christ was born. God foreknew you. He was intimate with you. He not only knew your actions, he knew your person. He loved you. Therefore, He chose you. Not He foreknew what you were going to do. Not that He foreknew that someday your action would be that you would pray and receive Christ. No, you did all that because He foreloved you. You did all that only because He knew you beforehand. And when the Bible says He knew you, it's not just sort of some casual knowledge of what you would do and the fact that you would be here. He knew you intimately and He loved you desperately. And He called you because He already knew you. And you gave your life to Him because you have been foreknown. And you, my friend, will never be forgotten. I'm the only one that really matters.
hand. On top of all that, as if just a miraculous, overwhelming gift of God, the Bible says we will be reunited with one another. You may say goodbye on this land, but it's not goodbye forever for those who know Christ. We talk about losing people. I lose a lot of things. In fact, couldn't find my glasses. In fact, I'm not sure where I put them now. But when we talk about losing loved ones, if that loved one belongs to Christ, they're not lost. We know exactly where they are. We know exactly where they are. And it's the same person. We get the idea. We use past tense emotions for people who have passed. We need to stop that. Just What's that? Uh, Barney says, nip it in the bud, Jay. Nip it in the bud. And we need to nip it in the bud. Here's what we do. Say, oh, so-and-so loved his bride. Loved his wife. Oh, so-and-so used to love this. Oh, so-and-so used to... Stop that kind of past tense. They still love their bride. You think you get to heaven and you're somehow, like in the sci-fi movies, you just look at the light, please, and they erase your memory and now you don't know who you loved on earth? It's not that you get up there and you just forget everybody. In fact, the Bible promises that there will be a great reunion of the loved ones that have gone on before and the dear saints, the husbands, the wives, the sons and daughters that we have lost, some we have never known. Tiffany and I lost a child before he was ever born. I look forward to someday to meeting them. This is not all there is. And to answer my own silly, reflective, melancholy question, is this all we get? No! Eeyore, that is not all you get. You have been given grace upon grace and peace and grace in its fullest measure because you, my friend, have been foreknown by the living God. And when you have been foreknown by the living God, the world can act as it may. COVID can do what it wants. And the government can label me however they want to. Because I am an elect. I'm a saint elect. And there's no dispute. There's no dispute on ballot boxes or recounts because there's only one vote that matters and he voted for me. You are an elect. You're an exile. I recognize, and so does Peter, that during this time of exile, there will be difficulties and there will be trials. But know this, you are not just an exile. You are an elect exile. And what you do here matters. Because you are not destined to stay here. You're destined to go home. Something good about going home. I'm good about the world. I don't know if you've ever been on a long trip. And sometimes no matter how long it is or how great it is, there's something about pulling in that driveway, shutting off that engine. And maybe you've just come from you know a wonderful place like Wyoming or the Blue Blue Ridge Mountains, a place of refreshing and beauty. And yet when you pull the driveway, and you know you're home. Let me tell you something. You will never feel deepest in your soul that you are truly home this side of heaven. But when you get there, 
and you find there all the saints and loved ones that have gone on before. And someday knowing that all the saints and loved ones you leave behind are going to join you with, well, you will be home. You're not just an exile. You're an elect exile. Or no. Under salvation by God Himself. We are not destined to get much further. But I say, if that's not enough to bring you joy, then we need to talk. Because you and I, of all people, have reason to praise God for great joy this morning. The foreknown saints of the living God, elect exiles in the land, anointed by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit unto obedience to Jesus the Christ. What a marvelous Lord we serve. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth you give us in it. Father, we thank you for the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit to help us to walk in obedience to you, Lord Jesus. And Father, while we cannot get our minds around all that you are, complexities comprise the holy and triune God. Father, we recognize you are good. We give ourselves to all that we understand and know of you, Father, trusting your character and goodness and mercy and grace. Thank you for joy, Lord, this morning. The peace and joy you bring us is deep and abounding. It sustains itself. And you sustain it. Even in the midst of trial and heartache and loss and things seem confusing and undone all around us, we have we know joy in you. The joy the world cannot understand and we cannot possibly give. And then you give it so freely. Thank you, Father. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand and.
I don't know if the music's just especially good this morning. You're just especially pretty this morning. I'm just especially happy. And maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just I'm listening to God especially good this morning. Uh, thank you for being good. I know He has blessed you. If He hasn't, come talk to you. Know, we can do that. Um, any announcements? Oh, school supply list is in the bulletin. If you don't, uh, if you pick one up, you can pick one up. Um, there's just a few items that we're going to do this year. We're going to have people provide some of the, the uh, more obvious items, and then the church will purchase some of the other necessary items. We're going to uh, prepare a limited number of bags per class, like we did last year, and then provide them to the teachers so they can hand them out as kids in their class might might need them. So pick up a bulletin if you're interested in providing some of those materials, and then later we'll also uh, have opportunity to contribute some money specifically to that if the church, if you want to do that, so we can provide for school supplies for our kids. Be in prayer for um, the children, and we'll be beginning school fairly soon. Uh, some schools uh, where Tiffany and, and Sydney are teaching, they've already started. Uh, Isaac starts tomorrow. And uh, so uh, as we come into this new school year, it's, you know, there's still a lot of challenges out there. We need to pray for um, the young people in our educational systems, and not only that, but teachers that uh, can be overwhelmed during these times and just laden with more and more special sort of responsibilities and obligations. And, already overworked and underpaid. And so pray for them, that God give them strength, insight, and wisdom as they try to shape and mold these young lives. And pray especially for Christian teachers. The struggle, particularly in a public school setting, to have an impact of an eternal nature on their students. And I'll get called into uh, some kind of conflict about that. So any of it, be in prayer for our schools and our children and our teachers as that begins. Anything else? Let's go for Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for the goodness and greatness of who you are. We thank you for salvation. Father, we thank you. We were foreknown by you. We were called by the sanctifying work of your spirit. Father, we just love you. We just pray that you would uh, go with us as we leave this place. You would help us to walk humbly before you and boldly before the world. And Father, though we are exiles, we recognize that we are children of the King and we are headed home. Thank you for all you've done, all you will surely do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.